Pastor Ed Taylor. God is faithful, and He knows what He's doing in your life today. He wants you to be reminded that you, your life, is not out of control. He knows the future. And when we lack that memory, we're just like, I don't know, maybe God's forgotten me. Maybe God's abandoned me, just like David felt many, many times. God has sprinkled throughout the scriptures these prophetic insights just to remind you, you know, God knows what he's doing. <laughs> he knows the future. He put it in writing. He staked his character. He, he staked all of his reputation upon what he predicted to come to pass. This is amazing grace. One of the most significant factors that separates the Bible from any other book in history is the amazing accuracy and detail of its prophecies. 2 Peter 1.19 says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This becomes increasingly clear as we read through the Old Testament book of Daniel, where we find ourselves today on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. We're looking at chapter 8, which contains some amazing predictions that have been already fulfilled with remarkable accuracy. And today, Pastor Ed shows us how that can encourage our faith. Prophecy encourages our faith. One of the great enemies of our faith is doubt, having second thoughts questioning our decisions, question, looking, kind of looking backwards and going, well, you know, if I didn't make this decision, didn't make that decision, I wouldn't be where I am today, instead of trusting God in the moment and trusting God that even if it was what could be considered a bad decision, trusting God that he's going to work all things together for the good, that nothing's wasted with him, that no matter which way we go, we were seeking him, we were praying, and then we made a decision by faith, and so be careful of the hesitations, the vacillations, having that unbelievable unsurety, the weakness of our wavering. Someone once said, doubt makes the mountain that faith moves. And it really depends on what we want to look at. The great mountains in front of us, the great impossibilities, or the faith that God has given us to face our mountains. And there seems to be no lack today of attack upon the truthfulness and reliability of the Bible. The, the very essence of God's Word. That, that The Bible doesn't contain words of God. The Bible is the Word of God. It is truth through and through. The Bible couldn't be clear of its own declaration that all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for your life and mine. And I think the attacks upon the Bible are such because if you can undermine the basis of God's truth, the truth that God's revealed, then we'll be shaky because we're just depending on our own opinions and trying to figure things out. And if we can under, if, if someone, the enemy of our souls, a friend, a, a skeptic can undermine the truth that God has revealed, then our faith in God will shake too. And so jot this down in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. Peter, an eyewitness, 
a friend, a confidant of Jesus, a follower, someone who committed his life to following Jesus, left everyone and everything, someone who went all the way, faced a martyr's death, wrote this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we were not making up clever stories. Again, reading from the New Living Translation. We were not making up clever stories. Or the New King James, we weren't sharing with you cunningly devised fables. When we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. What, we, what Peter wrote, what Peter shared wasn't made up. It wasn't some story to try to convince you. Didn't want to take advantage of you. He wasn't trying to be clever with you, manipulate you, try to have some cunning fable in order for you to follow God. He was telling you the truth. He was an eyewitness. You could trust him because he was there. And in our study in the book of Daniel, chapter 7 through 12, that section, the last part of Daniel is prophetic. Chapters 1 through 6 are personal. We got to know Daniel as a man, as a prophet, as a man of God, a man of faith, someone who trusted God with his life. In the second half, the last half of the book of Daniel is prophetic. Because prophecy is powerful. Prophecy, we learn, is history in advance. God speaking of and writing of things in the future as if they already happened. And only God can do that. You can't do that. I can't do that. Only God can do it. You see, God is outside of time and space. The Bible declares him to be all-knowing or omniscient. He has foreknowledge. So he knows what, being all-knowing, he knows what's going to happen ahead of time before it happens. And so on occasion, much of the Bible is filled with those very prophetic proclamations. Again, jot it down in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. It says, yet it was our weakness he carried... It was our sorrows that weighed him down, and we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so as to be, so we could be made whole. He was whipped, and so we could be healed. That's why, because of God's ability to know the future in Isaiah 53, he could predict the crucifixion, not only the death of the Savior, but how exactly it would happen before it was even invented. See, God is all-knowing, and He knows what He's doing in your life. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is a, an obscure passage or so. is when Jesus is feeding the thousands, and He sends the brother away to go get the, to go get the resources. And there's that question, how are we going to know? I don't understand. I don't see how we're going what, to... You know, those are all paraphrases. And Jesus, the, the text says that Jesus told, was testing him. Why? Because Jesus already knew what he was going to do in your life, in their lives, and in your life as well by application. You're going through these things and years go, I don't understand. Why have you allowed this? I don't think this is going to happen. There's not enough money in the bank. I don't know what the future holds. What about this over here? And what about my boss? What's going to happen when I go in on Monday? What happened? And it's almost like Jesus saying, look, I've led you in this way to test you because I already know what I'm going to do in your life. I already know the outcome. And because you love me and because you have faith in me, God says, trust me because I, you don't know the outcome, but I know the outcome. And just trust me. But even circumstances, we don't need another person to cause us to doubt God. We have the situation. You know, the little ones we can handle. 
The ones that require five or 10 bucks, we'll pull it out of our pocket. We'll write a check. The one that requires five or 10 million, I mean, we don't even think, what do you mean five or 10 million? I don't even have five or 10 bucks in my pocket. But do you think that God can't provide five or 10 million as easy as he can provide five or 10 bucks? God's faithful. He can cure the headache. He can cure the cancer. God is faithful. And he knows what he's doing in your life today. He wants you to be reminded that you, your life, is not out of control. He knows the future. And when we lack that memory, we're just like, I don't know, maybe God's forgotten me. Maybe God's abandoned me. Just like David felt many, many times. God has sprinkled throughout the scriptures these prophetic insights. Just to remind you, you know, God knows what he's doing. <laughs> he knows the future. He put it in writing. He staked his character. He, he staked all of his reputation upon what he predicted to come to pass. And in chapter 8, as we're launching into the prophetic part of Daniel, there's another great insight on prophecy. It's a fascinating insight that only is so powerful when you look back to see how it was fulfilled. Because often prophetically, in biblical prophecy, we find types and shadows of still yet coming events. A person or event that can form a picture of what's up ahead. A great example of that a great example of that is in Genesis chapter 22, the true story, as we've studied through in Hebrews, the true story of Abraham taking his son, remember his only son, although it wasn't his only son, because that phrase doesn't mean only in number, it means unique. As Jesus Christ declared to be the unique son of God, unlike any other. In Genesis 22, Abraham takes his only son up to Mount Moriah, at the top of Mount Moriah, in obedience to God, to present him as a sacrifice, which just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. As you look at it, just moment by moment. But this becomes a picture. As God leads this, it becomes a picture of God the Father sacrificing his only begotten son. So not only is this true story of Abraham, his life story, but it also becomes prophetic, predictive of the future. And it's also the first mention of love in the Bible. And the first mention of love in the Bible has to do with a father's love of his son. A son submitting willingly, obediently to the point of death. And that very same mountaintop would become the place where Jesus Christ himself was crucified. The place where once again, like in Abraham, Abraham was, God told Abraham, I will provide myself a sacrifice. You fast forward a few thousand years, God indeed provided, the Father did indeed provide himself the sacrifice, God the Son dying for your sins and mine. So as we come to chapter 8, the second half, we study this coming world leader, the Antichrist, but he's pictured as a human leader in history, a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. So notice with me in verse 9 of Daniel chapter 8. So as then one of the prominent horns came a small horn whose power grew very great. It extended through the south and the east toward the glorious land of Israel. Its power reached to the heavens where it attacked the heavenly army, throwing some of the heavenly beings and some of the stars to the ground and trampling them. It even challenged the commander of heaven's army by canceling the daily sacrifices offered to him by destroying his temple. The army, verse 12, of heaven was restrained from responding to this rebellion. So the daily sacrifice was halted 
the truth was overthrown, and the horn succeeded in everything it did. Verse 13. Then I heard two holy ones talking to each other. One of them asked, how long will the events of this vision last? How long will the rebellion that causes desecration stop the daily sacrifices? How long will the temple and the heaven's armies be trampled on? And the other replied, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the temple would be made right again. Now remember, a horn, don't get confused here with the many horns mentioned. Because horns in the Bible represent power and authority. And we learn the definition of something by its context. We want to pay careful attention to the context. They're often used to also to identify people. So this little horn, by way of you note-takers, is not the same little horn from chapter 7. We got a whole new description, a whole new, defini- a whole new identification of using a similar description. And you find this very often in scriptures. You've got to make sure that the context defines exactly what you're reading. So there the ruler comes out of the last empire, that small little horn, the revived Roman Empire. He's the Antichrist himself. This horn, chapter 8, comes out of the Grecian Empire and is a shadow or a type of the Antichrist, a picture. Chapter 7 speaks of four empires, but chapter 8 now narrows it down to two. And that's the difference. This one is a type. The one in chapter 7 is the actual person himself. And so a distinct change has taken place here in chapter 8. The language of chapter 8 now reverts back to the Hebrew. Now remember, Daniel has been written in two languages, Hebrew and Aramaic. And now, beginning in chapter chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 7, verse 28, The language shifted. It started off in Hebrew, then it shifted to Aramaic, and now the rest of the book now will be written in Hebrew. And you go, Ed, what's the significance of that? Well, God never does anything just to do it, just so prophecy buffs can put a YouTube video up or nothing. It's not, there's meaning in this. And here's a meaning. You ready? The the reality of Hebrew being used, Hebrew is the language of the Jews. Now, in chapter 1, we learned of the fall of Jerusalem. And then beginning in chapter 2 verse through chapter 7, we began to learn about the world and the world rulers. So the language shifts a little bit. Aramaic's being used now, the language of the day. And now back focusing, the rest of the book focusing on Israel, goes back to Hebrew. And the other nations will treat the nation of Israel. Hebrew's going to be the rest of the book. So you can jot that down if anyone, you're ever in a Bible trivia. And you go, how many languages were used to write the Bible? What's the answer? Okay, so the languages are Hebrew. What's the next one? Aramaic. And the New Testament? Greek. And just for a side note, the New Testament was written in what's known as Koine Greek, which would be the common language of the day so that everybody could understand it. It wasn't the high, although some of the Greek was written, although it was Koine, some of it, like some of Paul's writings, were written in a high level of Greek, but most of it is very common Because it's God's intention for us to understand the Bible. It's one of the reasons why God has gifted our church and the church capital C with the the role of pastor-teacher. So that God would give a spiritual gift for explanation. So that not only would you know God's Word, you would know what God's Word means. And then third, secondly, you would know what God's Word means to me. And then thirdly, you would know what God's Word means to me 
in this situation right now. And we're grateful for those men that have taught us and those women that have taught us over the years. So we read now in chapter 8 of our earthly ruler that gives us a great picture of what will happen in the future. In chapter 11, it's laid out in more detail. But we, before we jump into the rest of the text, we need to ask the question, why? Why a focus again repetitively on this coming imposter? This focus, of course, is by type. Why and by picture? Why? Why does it keep? Why does it keep being repeated in Daniel, and actually many times in the Scriptures? Well, God wants the children of Israel to know what's going to happen in the future, so that they'll be equipped and prepared and not be deceived by a false Messiah. That's one of the purposes of the truth. When you know the truth, you'll be able to discern a lie much quicker. Now, some people choose to study lies more often than they study the truth. I know that was a trap that I fell into as a new believer. I was so zealous for the gospel. I was so zealous to teach the truth. I was so zealous to win people to Christ. I was so, and I had a particular leaning toward apologetics. It, it, it fit well with my thinking. And so what I did is I began to study the Jehovah Witnesses very deeply. I would read everything I could about what they believe and how they believe. And I'd buy this book and I'd study the Jehovah Witnesses. And then I would follow them around our neighborhood when they were walking around and just saying, you know, don't listen to them. And then talk to them on the sidewalk. Don't listen to them. And I remember one time, very particularly, we were driving by. I had my son Eddie in the front seat. We were driving down the road near, he's just a little guy. And we're driving, and I saw the Jehovah Witnesses. I flipped a U-turn, parked the car, took Eddie up there and said, what are you guys doing? Lying to the... Like I was zealous. Just say it was zealous. I didn't win one Jehovah Witness to the Lord, but man, did I try. But I made a great error, not only in my approach. Let me just say that is not the most effective approach to chase down people and scare them. Um, as you see you screech your car, come up, speed up, pull, pull their little kid, walk, run over and go, you liars. And I don't remember what I said exactly, but I'm sure they were scared. But I also made a grave error is spending all that time learning about falsehood instead of just learning about the truth. Because one of the things I believe I would have learned faster if I studied the truth, the natural, the natural addition would have been the right approach. I would have learned grace, mercy. I would have learned at an earlier age. Now, God had a school for me, so I had to learn it that way. But I would have learned at a much earlier age walking with the Lord that delivery is everything. That your point isn't to win an argument, it's to win a soul. And you may indeed be so versed in all the verses and just knock down every single argument and just be so strong in what you say. And you might win the argument, but you would lose the soul. And in reality, we want, to, we want both. We want to win the argument and the soul. We, but we want to place the soul in the highest priority. So what did they do many years ago? And they may still do it today, but what did they do many years ago when you would take a job as a teller in a bank they wouldn't lay out, take them into a room and lay out all the counterfeit bills that have ever been made and say, okay, you got a week, get used to the counterfeits. No, it was much simpler than that. They gave them the real thing and said, really get to know the real thing. Feel it, touch it, crinkle it, smell it, pay attention, know the real thing. Because when you know the real thing, when you understand what a real dollar bill looks like, smells like, you got all the hidden features in it, all the little colored string in it, when you see the, the strip in there, when you hold it up to light, when you see, when you know the real thing, you will know a falsehood when it's in your hand immediately. You don't need to compare it to all the ones that you studied. You'll know because you know the truth. 
And so the truth is important. The truth is important because it inoculates you from the falsehood. People are making up new lies every day, all day. But the Bible says, in Romans, says to be excellent in what is good and to be innocent in what is evil. So whatever spare time you may have, and I know spare time is at a loss these days. Our culture is just pressing, pressing, pressing. We don't have a lot. But whatever spare time you have, it will do you well to know the truth. Not only will the truth set you free, it'll prepare you. When you know the truth of the gospel, a lie, like somebody comes up to you and go, well, I just want you to know that really the Bible says that God had a wife. And you're like, bro, that, that just simply isn't true. Why are you coming up to me? I'm with my kids getting ice cream. Why are you telling me God has a wife, bro? Where is that in the Bible? And they go, oh, here, right here, it's right here. And, and then you know that scripture already because you've been reading the Bible. You, you're like, that's not what that says. What, what are you talking about? That's not what that says. And they say, well, how do you know? You're some seminary. No, I, you just look him in the eye. You go, no, I know the truth. I know the God that you're misrepresenting. Have you ever heard it? And instead of arguing with them, it just turns into a witnessing thing. If they stick around, you know, they may not stick around, but it just turns into an opportunity to witness. It says, you know, there's a God in heaven that loves you. A God in heaven that wouldn't send you around lying to people at the ice cream shop. A God in heaven that died, sent his own son to die for you. You don't have to make up these fanciful things. Who told you that? You didn't learn. I, one, of the, one of the techniques that I use when we get down to a false teaching like that is I'll say, I'll use this phrase. You might want to jot it down and remember. I said, who taught you that? Because you didn't learn that in the Bible. A good question there to ask of those who have embraced false teaching. Who taught you that? Because you didn't learn that in the Bible. You're listening to Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. And Ed, in your experience, have you found that offering up questions is an effective way to witness to the unsaved? You know, Larry, I was introduced to this methodology of communicating through questions to draw out this thought process through a man by the name of Ron Rhodes. Many of you are familiar with Ron Rhodes. Years ago, he wrote a book entitled Reasoning from the Scriptures with Jehovah Witnesses. He's since added a lot of other groups to that series of books, but that book completely changed my way of thinking in terms of communicating to people, especially to those that are caught up in false teaching, maybe even caught up in a cult, where you ask these open-ended questions that force the person to think about what they believe in a way that they're not used to. And this question right here, who taught you that? because you didn't learn it in the Bible, is a very important one, because it automatically puts a person, whether they admit it or not, it puts them in that position to say, you know what? I did learn this from a person. It wasn't just through my regular Bible reading. I didn't just pick this up at three o'clock in the morning. It was a YouTube video. It was that group of Mormons that came to my house. It, it was that Jehovah Witness friend at work that gave me that. It was that Catholic friend that started talking to me about this. And before you, right in that midst of the question is inherent to the reality that it's pretty obvious they didn't get that through the simple reading of the Bible. So asking questions is very important, open-ended questions especially, because it gets a person, whether they admit it or not, because again, you know, your conversation with them is going to last minutes, hours maybe, maybe you'll have a couple times, but what, what I'm always looking for is for them to walk away from me with our conversation still going on in their head. Walk away from me really thinking, okay, so who taught you that? Well, they may not admit it to me. 
They may not say, well, you know, I was watching this YouTube video and I watched 56 episodes in a row and now this is my new belief, Pastor. No, no, they won't do that, but they will walk away going, man, it was this dude on YouTube and I don't even know who he is and I don't know what he meant and I wonder and it gets, it, it provides an avenue. Remember, it provides an avenue for the Holy Spirit to bring about a revelation of truth. It's not my responsibility to do that. I, I, I send forth the word of God, have a good conversation, and then ask good questions to open the pathway for the Holy Spirit to do a work that only the Spirit can do. And remember, we're not looking to win an argument. We're looking to win a disciple of Jesus. We're not looking to win an argument, because I guess you could win an argument but lose the person. Well, we want to win the person. We want to love them and genuinely care for them. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to ask open-ended questions. Thanks, Larry. Thanks for sharing that, Pastor Ed. And listening friend, a quick reminder, you can access all of these studies in Daniel online at AboundingGraceRadio.com or through the Calvary Aurora app. Don't miss our next study in Daniel. It's going to be a good one. That's right here on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. 